0: Today, I'm joined by John Yates, PhD, better known as Kulidasa. Kulidasa is a meditation master with more than four decades of experience in the Tibetan and Theravadan Buddhist traditions. A former professor, he taught physiology and neuroscience for many years, and later worked in the field of complementary and alternative medicine. His book, The Mind Illuminated, has been described as a rare and valuable treasure and has been enormously popular among dedicated meditators for its incredible clarity and usability, even to very advanced stages of practice. In this interview, we talk about how Kulidasa's dysfunctional upbringing led him to being homeless on the streets at 15 years old, why even years in Catholic seminary didn't provide the answers he was looking for. We discuss his initially frustrated attempts at meditation before one key discovery changed everything. So without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce Kulidasa. In your book, The Mind Illuminated, you say, I've always been a seeker. For as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by both the mind and the physical sciences. What I sought and eventually crystallized into a lifelong passion was nothing less than the search for ultimate truth. Can you talk a bit about your early life and how it was that you became... So fascinated with that search.
1: Yes. I, I grew up in a very dysfunctional situation, which just as an aside, uh, I found very few people that haven't. <laughs> so I suppose in that regard, uh, I'm not that uh, unusual. <clears throat> but um, how to put this succinctly, um, I... I had uh, uh, my mother had some psychiatric problems and the result of which uh, she uh, was uh, unusually attached to me. And therefore, for the first uh, for the first 14 years of my life, uh, I rarely went to school and I had very little contact with other people. And assimilated her worldview. And then uh, uh, we moved to a different place where the officials at the school insisted that I attend school. And so I was uh, 14, going on 15, and discovered that everything that I thought I knew about everything was very different than what anybody else did. <clears throat> this was a very emotionally traumatic incident that led to me leaving home when I was 15. Um, but it, it kindled in me this desire to find out what was true. And um, the early stages of my search brought me to the very clear conclusion that uh, although my mother was very much out of touch with, quote, conventional reality, um, nobody else knew any more than she did, really. <laughs> and so, uh, um, well, I probably goes back further than that. <clears throat> my mother was an extremely intelligent woman and read a lot and talked a lot. Um, my father was a research scientist. So my home influence probably had a lot to do uh, with, uh, with wanting to understand, uh, uh, well, yeah, to know the truth, really to know, uh, to understand the meaning of life and uh, what this was all about. I, my child, without going into it, my childhood was traumatic in many other ways, so um so between being in a family of people who were interested in seeking for truth for its own sake and having a childhood where um basically trying to answer the question of of why why on earth is this even happening <laughs> why why do I exist why am I here so Made me a perfect candidate once I finally discovered Buddhism for the pursuit of a path that was based on the suffering, nature of suffering, and the end of suffering. So,
0: and Buddhism wasn't your first stop.
1: No, it wasn't. Um, uh, where I lived and at that time, I didn't really know that there was any any spiritual path other than um, than Christianity. And although I was raised in the Episcopal Church, I actually went and knocked on the door of the Bishop's Palace in Galveston, Texas, and asked to see a priest and asked if I could uh, be um, be trained in uh, Catholicism, because that was the mother church of, uh, of all of the Christian churches, ultimately. So you, you go right to the source. That led to me spending two years in a Catholic seminary before I realized that the training in the priesthood had absolutely nothing to do with what I was looking for, and so I switched to science as uh, as the primary means of my search for meaning and understanding. Um, but I quickly discovered the limits of that. Um, I had a good foundation of philosophy philosophy from the time I spent uh, uh, in the seminary, and between philosophy and science, uh, I could see clearly the limitations of science, and I knew that what I was looking for was outside that realm. Didn't know where to go. It just happened to be the 60s. The whole, you know, Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, everything else, uh, and. So I discovered that, um, first of all, it became very clear that there was um, far more to this world and the ways of perceiving it than anything that I had ever known, or or what the vast majority of people on this planet are aware of. Um, But I also, like so many of us back in that day, realized that... um, that this was only a way to get a glimpse into, into the vastness of, uh, of the reality that we're a part of and to realize very clearly <clears throat> the degree to which our own minds and that messing up our minds with a few chemicals, how that could completely alter our perceptions. So you might say between... Discovering that my understanding of the way the world works, plus discovering that nobody else knew really any better, and then subsequently the uh, uh, experience with science, uh, Catholic theology and philosophy, and psychedelics, uh, led me to uh, what I would say was probably uh, best described as a, a pretty powerful insight into emptiness, which I didn't know where to go with that. But I, at that point, I did learn about Eastern philosophies and Eastern religions. Uh, as I say, there was nobody around to teach. The only source I could find was the Advaita Vedanta Society in Chicago. So I ordered all the books I could from them. I read them. I tried to teach myself to meditate using Patanjali's yoga sutras. Sutras, sorry. I switch back and forth between Sanskrit and Pali all the time. Um, Anyway, after a sojourn in the transcendental meditation world, after the Beatles brought uh, Maharishi Mahesh to the West, uh, finally I discovered Buddhism. I was a graduate student at the time. And... The person that was uh, introducing me to Buddhism, uh, one of the things he told me is that the Buddha had said, don't believe anything I I say, come and see for yourself. And I said, hey, that sounds like my kind of thing. And the more I learned about it, the more, yeah, just uh, a lot of recognition that this this was the path for me.
0: And that was Upasaka Kema Ananda. Yes. Uh, I'd like to ask a bit about him, but before I do, what was it about your experience at the seminary that was lacking?
1: Well, it's very large on uh, doctrine and very weak in uh, anything that really goes Beyond uh, the, the fundamental Christian or Judeo-Christian framework, uh, it's what I encountered. In uh, you see, what I thought that I would be learning about was the things that I'd read: John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, the Cloud of Unknowing. Uh, this was this is what I thought I would be introduced to. Instead, I was taught a Theology that was rigidly confined to the fundamental Judeo Christian set of assumptions. Uh, we were allowed to dabble a bit in modern process theology, but fundamentally, what we were presented with was a truncated intellectual approach where we would study a Agass- uh, um, Augustine Augustine <laughs> sorry uh, and um, and Thomas Aquinas and um, what I was really struck by is after creating his Summa theologica uh, Aquinas pushed it all aside and said it means nothing he had had some kind of realization that had gone beyond this uh, framework and um, other things that disturbed me greatly were doctrine, like um, uh, people who were not fortunate enough to be born in uh, a Christian or Catholic environment and were never baptized were automatically condemned uh, <laughs> through no fault of their own. <laughs> that made no sense to me at all. A variety of doctrines like that. Um Maybe the one thing I had the biggest problem with of all was the the whole thing about the, you you go out and you break uh, the commandments and you sin right and left and then you go to confession and then the slate's wiped clean and then you go and do the same thing again and then you know it's like <laughs> that that didn't seem to me uh, that well. That seemed to me to be nothing but uh, uh, a a sop for the mass of people who were being manipulated by the Catholic Church. Um, uh, Christianity fulfilled its function as a religion by bringing a lot of stability, uh, uh, social stability, and uh, played a major role in the politics of uh, Europe. But um, as far as the, uh, the majority of the people they supposedly served, uh, they weren't really meeting their spiritual needs except in a very limited way. Of course, I discovered the same thing about Buddhism as I became – as I got – of course, being in North America when Buddhism was just being introduced uh, – Uh, to a significant degree. I mean, it was really previously introduced Zen uh, and and, uh, Alan Watts and so forth, but it didn't really take hold. But it was beginning to take hold in the 70s and 80s in a very new way. And um, so I was exposed to what uh, is referred to amongst scholars as um, the uh, um, um, what what is the word that they use the um, virtuoso Buddhism and the other Buddhism that they refer to as village Buddhism which is the Buddhism of the people. So there's exactly the same dichotomy in Buddhism uh, between between uh, as as there between the the monastics and the laity, as there was in the church between uh, the uh, priesthood and the laity. Um, so while while that was one of the things that disturbed me initially about Catholicism and Christianity, as I learned more about it, I have to admit I see exactly the same thing. In uh, Buddhism, the average lay Buddhist person, the best they can hope for is by supporting the uh, monks and the monasteries to gain enough merit to be reborn uh, with the good fortune to become a monastic themselves. <laughs> oh, and if they happen to be female, they have to be reborn as a male for this to happen. So, you know, I don't know. That's kind of an aside. But uh, um yeah.
0: We might be skipping forward a bit here, but how did you recover from such a jarring experience at 1415? Did your meditation practice that you later developed have an impact there? That sort of um as you say emotional trauma can be quite stubborn and far-reaching.
1: Yes, it it, it was. And um, yes, it, it certainly was. I spent uh, I spent quite a bit of time. Uh, I would say I was both depressed and highly emotionally disturbed, uh, sort of rejecting social norms. Uh, because I was living on the street, that put me in contact with a whole lot of other people who were rejecting social norms for a whole variety of different reasons. Um, but um, at some point, well, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was when, I, when I turned 18, I looked at the situation that I was in and realized that, uh, that I had to change things. I hadn't completed high school, of course. I did a GED exam, scored in the 100th percentile, thought, well, that's great. I should be able to get into uh, college or university. So I applied altogether. I, uh, I used to remember the exact number, 100 and something different colleges and universities. Pretty much everyone said either no way or uh, complete a year at another accredited college or university and we'll consider your um, uh, transfer. So, But I fortunately had a mentor uh, who uh, uh, the uh, chairman of the biology department at a, the Catholic university that I ended up attending had been a graduate student of his. He was aware of my attempts to get into university, so uh, he contacted this person and arranged for me to to uh, actually. What they wanted me to do was first and second year English courses in summer school, and if I completed those in the summer session successfully, then I'd be admitted to university. So, um. In answer to your question, I've always felt like there was something inside of me that no matter what mistakes I made and what wrong directions I took, there was something inside of me that would always eventually come to the fore and turn me in the right direction. And then, equally so, it seemed like once I would do that, and somehow or another the universe would provide the means, Um uh, the one gave me the determination to uh, continue my education and to be able to make something of myself, and the other brought into into being an extremely unusual, totally unpredictable bit um, of um, fate that allowed that to become a reality.
0: And this insight into emptiness that came as the consequence of disturbing experiences and uh, the Catholic uh, explorations and the psychedelic experiences and so on. Was that a hunch about emptiness or was it a direct insight into it? Uh, In other words, was it a sort of accidental stream entry kind of a situation or or was it more of a gradual suspicion of emptiness?
1: It was... um... It was some of both, but it was not, it wasn't, but certainly in the way that I would uh, define it now, it was certainly not a stream entry experience. It was something which also I think is rather unusual and doesn't often happen, is to have a single aspect of insight become very clear. at an intuitive level. Um, When you use the word hunch and things like that, that really is how insight develops. It's this, there is some, the deeper intuitive parts of your mind uh, begin to recognize something that uh, the uh, the more prominent analytical parts of the mind remain blinded to. And that grew into a very, a very deep insight, but uh, I lacked, I lacked any context for it at all. It's just, I knew that nobody knew and that everybody was living in their own um, fantasy and at a personal level and whatever uh, social group they belong to, to, that they would reflect the fantasy world of that uh, social group. So it just became obvious that that was the situation. And that, that made me want more than ever. If it's possible for a human being to understand what really is going on, I wanted to do that. Um, to the extent that I would say, um, there was no—I saw no other point in living except to do that. So it was pretty powerful, but it was not stream
0: At that time, you met Upasaka Kema Ananda formerly Eric James Bell, and in your book you write, i had come into possession of a sitar in need of repair, and I wanted to learn to play it. By chance, I met someone who could help me do both and who had also spent several years studying Buddhism and meditating in Burma and Thailand. He was to become my first real spiritual teacher. Can you tell us a bit about uh, meeting Kema Ananda and how it was that you came to regard him as your teacher?
1: Yes. I first met him. Uh, you know, we're talking uh, about 1970-71, I think, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, I don't know if you and your listeners know much about Winnipeg, but uh, anyway, it's it's a a small city. Uh, in in the middle of the huge plains between uh, between Ontario and uh, uh, British Columbia that's just all one vast plain there. Uh, well, you get some hills in Alberta but um, um, one night in the first vegetarian restaurant to ever exist in in uh, in Winnipeg, and probably one of the first in Manitoba. One night, uh, there was this fellow who showed up dressed in white with a group of uh, his students with him, and he uh, provided the entertainment for the evening uh, playing a surbahar, which is a larger version of a sitar. And I enjoyed that thoroughly. And then when the time came for him to take a break, uh, what he did is he and his students who had come with him, there were maybe half a dozen of them, um, They uh, went, there was a, a space in the back next to the kitchen. They went back there and they began chanting a mantra for a, So that was the break. And then he came back and began performing again. I found this all very, very interesting. But most of all, since I had this broken sitar, which I had paid $25 to for another graduate student. He was from India, went back to India to get married. His wife was given this expensive sitar as a wedding present. It got smashed on the airplane. Why I bought it from him in the first place, I don't know. But I'd had it for several months, pieces in a paper bag. Here was somebody who was playing this instrument, and who was also interesting in a lot of other ways. So I just I asked him afterwards, I said, I have a sitar, but it's broken, and could you help me repair it? And so he gave me an address to come to, and we arranged for me to go the next Thursday at 2 in the afternoon. It's interesting how some things stand out in your memory very clearly, which I did. He looked at it and he said, yes, I think we can repair this. And so every Thursday afternoon, and it often ended up being four or five hours at a time. We would work on repairing the sitar, and he would talk to me about Buddhism. And um, I went from being uh, interested but skeptical to hearing more and more that I could resonate with. And as I say, when what was so different than anything I had been exposed. To before was to have the the person who had set this all in motion. a quote from him saying, "Don't take my word for it. Come and see for yourself." And as a as a PhD student in sciences, uh, you know that that was just. I was already interested. I was already intrigued. Things already resonated with me, but that. That put it all together, and I, I knew I'd found my way.
0: You then write, this particular group represented a unique confluence of Tibetan and Theravadan teachings in the person of Namgal Rinpoche, also known as George Dawson. And that, that's an interesting character. It says here, he originally ordained as Ananda Bodhi, he was an acknowledged master in the Southeast Asian tradition before being recognized as the reincarnation of Namgal by the 16th Gelwa Karmapa. What can you say about about Namgyal Rinpoche? I think his trajectory is very interesting. Um, people may not realize what it means to be recognized in two traditions like that, and how unusual it is.
1: Yes, and he was he was very unusual. Uh, he. I have no idea at all what he might have been like before his spiritual training, but he was uh, an absolutely amazingly powerful individual. Um, the thing that I think one of the greatest gifts that I received from him, and I think uh, this applies to most of the people that have been students in his lineage, is his eclecticism, he drew on any and every tradition to guide people towards awakening. And uh, uh, he took many unorthodox approaches. Now, let me make a clear distinction. In his unorthodoxy, we are not talking about the Chogyam Chankpa kind of unorthodoxy. Okay? Okay. but we're talking about a much more sophisticated approach to to teaching, and um, that that I think, um, aside from his legacy in terms of the number of people that he uh, helped to find their way on on the Buddhist path, uh, his greatest le- uh, legacy I think was and still is that. Um, Eclectic approach: uh, the idea that all spiritual paths are um, trying trying to achieve the same goal from different conceptual frameworks, but uh, and with lots of confusion along the way, and and um, a tendency to get partway there and think you've arrived, um, but that that they were all leading the same place and that the methodology of all these different traditions had its own validity.
0: From where do you think he he got that confidence to draw from those things in that way? I mean, he's recognized, as you said, by the Burmese tradition as being a master, and the Karmapa didn't exactly make everyone a tulku.
1: (laughs) That's right, he didn't.
0: Did those things factor in at all, or was it uh, more from his own personal uh, experience?
1: Well, I think, I think that was a, a, a very major factor. Um, there was, during the period, I, I uh, didn't really know anything about him during the period prior to him taking a second ordination from the Kamapa and um, becoming Namjal Rinpoche. Um, but... The impression I have is that when he went to London and set up meditation center there, and then to Scotland and set up another one there, which, by the way, uh, continues today as Samye Ling. at that point, as far as I can tell, he was still pretty much uh, um, an orthodox, if you can use the word, Theravadan. But I can't say that for certain. Um, well, he must already have had inclinations in that direction. But of course, two so very, very different lineages as uh, Theravadan and uh, uh, Kagyu uh, Tibetan, Um, for him to have been so comfortable and so readily adapt and, and see the, see the uh, convergences uh, in two such different traditions, uh, he must have had a very strong predisposition in that direction anyway. I sort of picture his conversations with the Karmapa being an expression of that, um, and perhaps having a lot to do with why the, the Karmapa um, recognized him as the Namjal Tulku.
0: Was he trained in the Karmakagyu or, or simply recognized?
1: I don't know how much time uh, he spent with uh, with the Karmapa and what other teachers that there may have been. But having been exposed to other Tibetan teachers since then, he was quite knowledgeable. So somewhere along the line, uh, he... He acquired a lot of uh, uh, traditional Tibetan training.
0: At that time, you're practicing a mixture of, of Kagyu and Theravada, and you're writing your book that you uh, began the gundro even. What was that like, mixing those two lineages from a practice point
1: of view? Actually, I, I enjoyed uh, the Gondro quite a bit. Um I had tremendous frustration with the, uh, Mahasi meditation technique, which I did that for a year and, uh, it just, you know, it, um, didn't work for me. So, uh, those, those two parts were, um, you know, one I enjoyed quite a bit, um, and i could see i could see a certain value in it and the other i found so frustrating that uh, i began to have doubts
0: for those who may not know ngundro is a sort of pre- it's called preliminary practice lots of prostrations lots of mantras this sort of thing in a preparation for uh, you know vajrayana teachings and the mahasi style very dry noting is that correct that's right how then did you come across this idea of shamatha vipassana coming together when things really started to click for you in a meditation point of view?
1: Well, uh, my second teacher, Jodhitama um, uh, Bhikkhu, returned to Canada after many years in Southeast Asia. And he came to the Vihara. That's, that's where Nanda and his students lived. It was a great big house uh, on the Assiniboine River. Uh, a mansion, basically, that uh, had been rented. And uh, when Jodhidama returned to Canada, he came and he stayed, uh, had an extended stay there. And uh, I talked to him about my problems with uh, the Mahasi tradition. And first of all, he introduced me to the, the Sudhi Maga, and he said, you know, th- this is where this comes from. Uh, read this and see if it uh, helps any, and uh, I tried to read it, um, but I, I found it—I I didn't find it helpful, really. And so then his suggestion—he said, "Well, you—you you know that this uh, Mahasi method was just—you know—we're uh, now talking the '70s." He said, "This is not even a hundred years old. This was just invented in the, in the." Uh, Burmese forest tradition, you know, less than 100 years ago, based on the um, based on the Vasudhi Maga section that you read. And he pointed out that you'll notice that most of the first part, the whole first section of the Vasudhi Maga is about, uh, it's, it's called the purification of uh, concentration, or mind, and um, that it's about um, developing shamatha. Explain explained to me what shamatha was. And he said, "The part that uh, Mahasi is based on, you'll notice, is prefaced by saying that, um, uh, that what he was going to describe uh, applied both to those who uh, came from the development of shamatha and those who didn't, and um, that uh, that perhaps that I would do better if I uh, undertook the." Shamatha training, which was, he said, far older, far more classical, and much closer to what the Buddha taught. Uh, I didn't understand the connection between what the Buddha taught and modern, well, I say modern, the Shamatha training that developed uh, uh, over, over the intervening centuries um, for quite some time. But because most of the Buddha's references to meditation at all are referred to the jhana practices, uh, and so of course jhana training was a part of the shamatha training that I did, and uh, they were very very complementary. This I found it 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 was it was exactly what I needed. It worked very well.
0: What was it? Do you think it was about the that shamatha that really? Work for you at that time.
1: Well, if you read my book, you might realize that one of the things that I have discovered is that samatha or calm abiding, while it does involve, as a very important component of it, the development of uh, samasamadhi, right, uh, right attention, right concentration is a bad translation because in English concentration. Uh, has a lot of connotations that are actually uh, uh, contradictory to the, the purpose of uh, Sama Samadhi. But uh, although developing stable concentration through the stages, uh, of, there are different stages of, of Samadhi, is important to development of, of samatha. What shamatha is really about, it's all about developing mindfulness. So um, uh, very, very powerful mindfulness. Uh, um, Now, what I discovered was that mindfulness was the equivalent of that way of knowing that I refer to as awareness that is quite distinct from both uh, physiologically and experientially from attention. (coughs) Excuse me. And samatha involves both uh, samasamadhi and samasati, the development of very stable attention and very powerful metacognitive introspective awareness, which uh, is sati sampajana. It is uh, mindfulness with clear comprehension. So, what samatha is? The best way to describe uh, samatha is as training the mind. And training the faculties of the mind so that they can work together in the most optimal way. To bring about, first of all, to recognize insight experiences when they arise. And then to allow those experiences to mature into insight. And that's why it worked. Um, because of my, my background and because it's the dominant Uh, mode in in, in global culture now, we are very much attention-dominated. And the the cultivation of awareness is minimal. Uh, Basically, consciousness consists of a field of conscious awareness. And anything that comes into attention first appears in that field of conscious awareness. But for most of us, the field of conscious awareness is this big, and attention occupies the rest of the space uh, and, and dominates. Um, if you look at some of the, there's been a rec- there's been a lot of recognition of these two modes of knowing, and one of one form that it takes. As some people discuss it uh, as fast thinking and slow thinking, and uh, fast thinking corresponds to awareness. And slow thinking corresponds to attention, which is very linear. It's the difference between linear processing and uh, parallel processing. Now, in the ordinary person, um, about all you experience of awareness most of the time, or mindfulness most of the time, is this sort of penumbra that uh, I would call the subconscious it's almost conscious, but it's not quite. It's on boundary. And that's, that's because of the dominance of attention. So, when you find people discussing slow thinking versus fast thinking, um, they tend to regard the fast thinking as being um, uh, it's fast, it's, it has, um, they, they will describe a lot of values that it provides to a person. And to, well, to an organism, and it is actually, you know, evolutionarily, it precedes the development of attention. But they also will describe it as being um, uh, prone to uh, uh, stereotypes and misunderstandings and, and not as effective and valuable as, as slow thinking. But absolutely necessary. It has certain advantages. Well, the reason for that is they're describing not the kind of awareness that's trained through samatha that we call mindfulness and ultimately uh, uh, sati sampajana. Um, it's where fast thinking is just in that uh, almost unconscious penumbra. And so it is, it does have various shortcomings. In Samatha, you expand the field of conscious awareness and attention becomes a point that moves within that field that is directed by the actually much more powerful and much more clearly discerning uh, awareness. So um, Samatha develops that and that's Samatha, Samatha, that's, there is this misunderstanding People think of samatha as developing concentration. They think of it as being primarily attention-oriented, and I even have to to admit that I was so influenced by that in my life that when I wrote *The Mind Illuminated*, I put a little bit too much emphasis on the attention part of it. Not, I mean, I I, I think I made it very clear that what's ultimately most important is, is the sati, is the mindfulness, the awareness. But I think I could have made it more clear by de-emphasizing somewhat the, uh, the cultivation of attention in that process. But if I were to give a description of samatha, I would describe it as primarily the cultivation of very powerful mindfulness. And so this is the perfect preparation then for insight.
0: I think the way you articulate that in The Mind Illuminated is one of the big game changers for a lot of people reading the book, I think, the interaction between attention and awareness. Uh, let me let me ask you this. You write, this book is appropriate for anyone with a strong interest in meditation. From a complete beginner to someone who has practiced for decades, it will be particularly useful for those who already have a practice and feel ready to go further on the contemplative path. And then you also talk about people who are dissatisfied with their years of meditation. Why do you think that the mind illuminated has proven to be so accessible?
1: Probably the most important thing is the clear recognition of attention and awareness as two completely different ways of knowing and understanding that that's what uh, in the Eightfold Path Samasamadhi and Samasati are referring to. Now, an interesting thing, uh, you'll notice that in the book I actually define mindfulness as the optimal interaction between attention and awareness. And the reason for that is that experientially, the vast majority of the time, that's how mindfulness manifests. But mindfulness is not the interaction it is the awareness component and the uh, optimal interaction as a result of having developed awareness recognizing that these are two very different things with very different properties and that um, that's that's why there are two separate components of the eightfold path i think that recognition and the application of that understanding to the mind training right from the beginning is the is probably the key to what sets my personal experience and my ability to express my personal experience, uh, my experience with working with other people and their success in the practice, uh, which I have also learned more from, you know, <laughs> When you, you can only know your own path, but in the position of a teacher where you get to share the journeys of many other people, you discover much more of the ramifications of that. But I think that's that's what has allowed me uh, to provide something that is far more useful. If you If you were to look at the definitions of mindfulness, you'll find the majority of them reveal clearly the failure to distinguish attention from any other way of knowing there is because these definitions come from people who have without explicitly recognizing it have developed awareness. You can see, you can read between the lines, even though they, they couch much of their definition in terms of attention. And it's not really mindfulness really is not about attention. So there's been this element of confusion all the way along. After my initial lack of success with the Mahasi method, um, many years later, after I had been practicing samatha and everything, I thought, <coughs> excuse me, I thought, it's time for me to go back and, and learn a little bit more about this because it had become enormously popular. By, popularized by uh, 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 Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein, and you know that whole crowd, IMS, Spirit Rock, so on and so forth. Um, so I went to um, probably one of the of uh, of the Mahasi method in the world, uh, Uvi Kananda, who is, I believe, still the uh, uh, the abbot of the uh, uh, um, a monastery in uh, a meditation center in Lumbini. It's the uh, uh, Pand- Pandita Rama uh, meditation center there. And I did retreat with him. And uh, I was able to more or less successfully uh, apply uh, the Mahasi principles and practice there enough to learn to understand it in the way that I I, I wanted to. Although I have to admit, I frustrated Vivekananda all the time. I said, "How are you doing?" I said, "Well, you know, I'm uh, I'm in this state of joy and bliss." He says, "You know, just note that and let it go. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that, but I couldn't help it because of." the training that I've had. But the, the little digression that I was talking about, uh, first of all, I realized that in that noting practice, what you were doing was developing awareness because uh, you're, fo- you're, you're focusing your attention on the rise and fall at the abdomen. And something in the background catches your attention, whether it's a thought or a sound or whatever it is. You redirect your attention to it, and you, you give it a little label, maybe repeat that until the interest in that fades away, and then you come back to the focus on the abdomen. So what you're doing there is, is because you're noting anything that comes up, you are developing what it is coming up in this field of conscious awareness. And so you are building this power of uh, awareness. You're building You're building sati by directing attention towards the content of awareness. By, uh, and that became really obvious. Okay, now I can understand how this works at all, right? Um, the other thing in that teaching is they often deny any particular importance to cultivating uh, stable attention at all and put the emphasis on momentary attention, which is, You know, you you keep shifting your attention to things that appear in the background. But as I proceeded through the different stages uh, or the uh, different knowledges and the progress of insight, it became very clear to me that uh, there was a point at which a shift was taking place where um, the arising of insight occurred as a result of this development of a much more powerful mindfulness. But without the kind of explicit recognition that uh, could allow this to be fully exploited. And um, so this is another example of what I'm saying is that you have a practice, the practice itself is described entirely in terms of how you use attention. But what is actually happening is you're developing mindfulness. And uh, at that point where uh, uh, mindfulness begins to arise, attention begins to be uh, something of, a, of an obstacle, but it's not recognized as such. So. Because it hasn't been trained to... There isn't an the inherent degree of stability that comes from the training in samatha. Samadhi is described as being parikama or beginner's samadhi. That's what somebody has when they reach stage four in the ten stages. Next comes upachara samadhi, which is uh, access. It allows access to both insight and to uh, jhanas. And what that is, is that's the exclusive attention that a person Uh, develops in stage six, uh, which still requires uh, effort to sustain. And then comes apana samadhi, which is the kind of absorbed samadhi, which is characteristic of jhana, but it's also, it's not in this process of development, that apana samadhi is not limited to shifting into that altered state called jhana. It is present continuously, and so a pāna-samādhi then matures into the true kānaka-samādhi or momentary uh, samādhi in that state attention no longer needs to remain on any one object, it can move from one thing to another, to another, to another but it moves not spontaneously but under the direction of mindfulness and wherever it lands and no matter how long it stays there it has the same fully penetrating power of uh, jhana, of the absorption into the object, with the first jhana. So uh, now, in the in the Mahasi method, this hasn't been developed as a stable faculty that a person has uh, uh, available to them at all times, but they do they do achieve a state of uh, sati in combination with a Um, relatively stable uh, uh, attention that is primarily the result of the fascination of the mind with the kinds of things that sati is bringing into consciousness. So attention becomes uh, a, it, it, it has the properties of apana and kanaka and in, in the true meanings of those terms because the information that is presented in the arising and passing away stage and in the dissolution stage is so fascinating to the mind that the attention, despite its lack of training and stability and subservience to, to uh, awareness, is functioning as if it had been trained in that way.
0: These are the sorts of distinctions that... Um, explain why it is that people who have been frustrated practicing hard um, are s- suddenly have an aha moment where a lot of their training can be recontextualized and start to function much more effectively. Even just from hearing some of those distinctions, I think, uh, I've heard a lot of reports about that. Yes. Going on from there, you write in your book that there's so much myth and mystery surrounding awakening uh, that many people tend to dismiss it. You go on to say, rest assured, it's a goal within everyone's reach. The Buddha said that with proper training it should take no longer than seven years and can happen even more quickly. Here, meaning in the mind illuminated, you will learn all you need to know about what must be done, how to do it and why. And we've we've come up now to your understanding this Mahasi method having gone via a sh- shamatha route, coming back to it and understanding it, what happened next? Can you walk us through a little bit your journey as a practitioner and discovering these various stages of insight, um, how it was that you came to experience them? Uh, for instance, uh, you're also known, I think, as being uh, willing to talk about attainments, such as the four paths and so on. We mentioned stream entry earlier. When did you arrive at those four paths or achieve those four paths? What was that journey like?
1: There is so much to be said about that, that I'm actually in the process of, of writing a book about it. Uh, it's sitting with me is the person who's helping me with the writing of that book, and intention is to spend the next 10 days just focusing on writing. Um, so um, obviously there's so much I could say, and I have so much on in my mind at the moment, that uh, it's uh, hard to say when and where to begin? Um, um, well, maybe some basics. Okay, the my experience of uh, of stream entry, first path attainment, came about uh, using uh, the method that I call meditation on the mind which is basically the same thing as Mahamudra and Dzogchen and that happened in um, uh, 1989 uh, one morning um, I used to get up early in the morning and I'd meditate for an hour or so and and i do all my morning things and get ready to go off and and teach. Um, retrospectively, from that event, uh, I was able to begin to see what had happened and how insight had had developed. Um, but and. And what was very clear to me from that, what happened there, is that it, it was stream entry not only because it fulfilled the criteria that the Buddha describes uh, as the, the falling away of the ten fetters, three of which fall away through stream entry, but that there was a permanent shift in the way I saw things based on the particular insights that are involved in the falling away of those three fetters. It was a permanent change in the way that I saw and understood things. And retrospectively, uh, I began to think about how how that came about. One effect, though, is that it so dramatically changed my life that um, things were so much better (laughs) than they had been that I wasn't so highly motivated, you know. It's like, yeah. So there's there's three more paths, but I mean, this is wonderful. So I I uh, ended up uh, I fell away from meditation practice and I began exploring a lot of other things. Spent several years exploring shamanism. Uh, remember, still a seeker. Okay, so I've made a great I, I've, I've made some great progress in uh, the discoveries that uh, I was after. <clears throat> so now I began to explore other dimensions uh, uh, with that. So it took it took quite some time before I reached the place where I was. Uh, I had the motivation, in terms of the dukkha, the dissatisfaction, to uh, actively begin pursuing the practice again uh, towards the second path. Um, as part of that, I retired at 51 and my wife and my son and I moved to, uh, a remote location in the mountains here in southeastern Arizona. Um, basically it was a monastery of two and I resumed my practice. Um, and, uh, you might find it interesting to know that it was on that uh, retreat with Vivekananda using the uh, Mahasi method that uh, I attained to Second Path. And um, the key event in that retreat was an encouragement by Marcia Rose, who's another teacher in New Mexico who was co-teaching with Vivekananda at that time, to meditate on mental states. Basically, uh, uh, well, uh, Vivekananda had already uh, encouraged me to uh, basically practice awareness of uh, uh, Vedana feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and, and neutral in those things that arose and, you know, to, to note those qualities. Um, then, Marsha. Uh, Added to that the encouragement to uh, do what would... That is the second of the four applications of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. Application to uh, mindfulness of feelings. Marsha recommended that I practice the third, which is mindfulness of of, uh, mental states. And this brought about powerful realization, like a shocking realization that the only mental states that I had ever experienced that were truly satisfactory were those that were completely free from any sort of craving. Uh, The emphasis was on craving with the recognition that self-clinging is what was driving the craving. And the unsatisfactoriness of all of those mental states is, of course, the nature of uh, craving. Uh, Dukkha means dissatisfaction. Craving is wanting things to be different than what they are, or resisting what is. So essentially, dukkha and craving, uh, they can be intellectually understood as two things, one having a causal relationship to the other, but ultimately, they're one and the same thing. (laughs) Two mental processes that uh, uh, produce the same effect. But um, anyway, the effect of this it was a very, very powerful recognition of what needed to be done and how important it was that it be done. And um, my, my meditations at that point, it was a month-long retreat. My meditations at that point uh, were often three or four hours in length. And uh, it was interesting in a very different, I had a very different type of, uh, 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 Magapala or path and fruition experience as a result of doing the uh, Mahasi practice um, than I did uh, with first time around doing uh, basically a Mahamudra type practice with uh, with stream entry. But... Um, So there was there was the gap. There was a gap instead of the experience of uh, consciousness without an object, you know, of of mind being devoid of of content. Um, But um, the effect of that, and this is how I describe it. And I take this from what the Buddha said, Mara, I have seen you. I know who you are. You will no longer trick me. You know, I can't be fooled by you anymore uh that in the ten fetter model what defines uh the attainment of second path is that that craving loses its power and self clinging loses its power it's still there and it needs to be overcome but it no longer has that the power over the mind that allows it to continue uh often unrecognized, and even often intentionally sought out uh, in first path. Because uh, um, one of the things that I realized was that uh, craving itself is not only is it almost synonymous with dukkha, but craving itself is also pleasurable. And there's a subtlety to that. And a subtlety to the many different forms of uh, craving that arise uh, that I won't go into. So, um, after the okay, a- after the initial magapala experience for second path, and the dwelling in the state of just crystal crystal clear understanding of the nature of self cleaning and. Uh, uh, craving and and suffering dukkha. In other words, the first three of the Noble Truths were just standing out so vividly clear. After a period of dwelling in that, I entered into the stage of reflection. And here, sort of reviewing how this had operated throughout my entire life. Right? And... Uh, uh, Creating a very powerful motivation to pursue the practices associated with the second path, which uh, leads to uh, uh, the point where there is no lo- craving no longer arises in response to uh, uh, the worldly things. The, the eight worldly dharmas. I don't know if you're familiar with those: pleasure, pain, loss, gain, fame, uh, disgrace, and uh, uh, praise and blame. Uh, well, I didn't get the right. It's, uh, fame, yeah, fame and disgrace, uh, praise and blame. Anyway, so there, there is the completely overcoming the the craving for these things. That is the practice of um, of second path, and which culminates in the uh, attainment of third path. Um. So, I, I don't think I will. Go into as much detail as I have. I think just describing that second path process, uh, I think, would give a lot of people a good idea uh, of that journey. But at every path, what what is characteristic is that um, some particular event will trigger. Uh, a coalescing in the mind of an understanding of something that you realize, in a sense, you've always known. Or the way another way that I put it is, we have insight experiences all of us all of the time, which we just we ignore. An insight experience is when you have an experience where the delusion that we dwell in because it is a delusion breaks down and we see through to the way things really are. Or another thing I always like to refer to as a wonderful illustration of this is Leonard Cohen's song, uh, ring the bells that still can ring. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets through. And I believe that that's what he was referring to in, in that song. He was a Buddhist practitioner himself the Zen tradition, that the recognition becomes really clear with the sense that, oh my God, I always knew this. How how come I never knew that I knew it? (laughs) Why did I never recognize this? But with an extreme empowerment associated with it. And so, essentially, training your mind in the way that I've described gives you the ability to put these experiences together and to use, the once again, the words of the Buddha to see things as they really are, to penetrate that delusion. And so the four paths are a a progression, uh, a very natural progression that um, reflects this development uh, of the falling away of, Ignorance or delusion, and with each with each such falling away, there is yet another shift in the way you perceive things, and that shift in perception, once it's occurred, is it's yours. It's it's um, another example that uh, I like to use is uh, Wizard of Oz. Uh, once uh, Toto pulls the curtain aside, and you've seen what the uh, You've seen what's behind the curtain. Uh, Dorothy could never forget. You know, the wizard the wizard had been exposed. The delusion had been revealed. And this development, this way that uh, insight develops and the shift in uh, perception and perspective that it results in, I think are uh, really quite definitive of the process. And that's why I say that this is available, uh, we have inherently this, these capacities. They can be developed. Now, perhaps there are some people uh, that we know it's not going to happen with, but that doesn't change the fact that it's a potential within within all of us as human beings. And it's a very unique potential in human beings. Um, it's sort of, it's the Having the kind of minds we have as a two-edged sword, we suffer more than any other organism that I know of uh, because we have this tremendous capacity to generate suffering with our minds. Uh, um, but we also, at the same time, have the capacity to step outside of the um, user interface that evolution has created and see things more as they really are and in the process of that, become liberated from the trap of that particular delusion.
0: Our time is almost up. I have one last question. I heard someone ask you, "What are you working on in your practice at this time?" I heard someone ask you that, and you and the answer you gave was developing uh, your compassion, re-embracing your humanity, and also dealing with the implications of your own death was the phrase. Yes. right. I'm curious what has your dealings with the implications of death revealed?
1: <laughs> yes. And it's probably a little bit different than, than, um, you expect. I, I don't know the, um, what tends to be underdeveloped, even in Tibetan Buddhism, where there's a whole practice devoted to development of compassion is, is compassion. So as, as, Ken Wilber is uh, expressing it nowadays. We have waking up, but we lack cleaning up, which is dealing with all of our psychological stuff, emotional stuff, and growing up, which essentially is is compassion, the cultivation of compassion. So it's possible to uh, to attain to all four paths and uh, become an arhat and still be... Uh, still need to clean up and grow up and develop compassion. And it's, so that my focus was on compassion, on, um, yes, regaining my humanity. The implications of my uh, pending death are simply what and how do I make use of the time and the energy that I have left. Um, death in the ordinary sense, uh, most people think of it, um, no longer has any meaning for me because I, I understand how things are in a sense where the idea of life versus death is, is, uh, one of the things that you deal with in third path is craving for being and craving for non-being. And the resolution for that is the realization of the non-duality of being and non-being, of existence and non-existence, of life and death, of living in a godlike formless realm or dwelling in this uh, world of, of, of form and suffering and beauty. You know. So um, the as far as my relationship with death, it's a... It's um, it's part of the process. It's just like waking up in the morning. It's like living my life. It's like going to sleep again at night. So the implications of death were what? what did this mean in terms of my opportunity to develop compassion, regain my humanity, and to manifest what I'm able to in the world, in the time, and with the energy that I have left which has brought me into a whole lot of new and interesting territory that would um, probably be very surprising to a lot of people, but uh, this is not the time and the place to go into that.
0: Well, it's very fascinating to talk to you, and thanks for agreeing to to join me here. Where can people find out more about you if they want to work with you, for instance?
1: Okay, the organization that I've created is called Dharma Treasure, and if you go to dharmatreasure.org, you'll find a lot of information. Um, we have a dedicated practitioner course that's taught by advanced students of mine. Uh, I, I should probably know they, they were students of mine, but now they are uh, teachers on, on their in their own right. Uh There is also a teacher training course, which I teach. Uh, I'm available for private consultations, and I do have to charge for my time because it's the only way to to, uh, – it's very easy for me to end up giving away all of my time. So it's a way of making sure that it's only people who are serious and keeping me from from, uh, um, spending all my time doing that instead of working on the teaching that I am. Uh, working on there is a huge volume of talks that I've given teachings I've given oral teachings over the year that is available uh, on SoundCloud can be asked, uh, accessed from the dharmatreasure.org website um, there's also a community forum the Dharma Treasure community which can be accessed uh, from the website as well so those were the those are the ways Um I've limited the amount of, uh, teaching, uh, and meditation retreats that I'm doing personally. Uh, I will be doing, uh, another one at, uh, BCBS, Barry, uh, Center for Buddhist Studies. It will be the third year in a row that I've taught there and that will be in August. Um, it is, uh, uh, it's a lottery, so anybody that's interested in attending that retreat should uh, make their application to BCBS and keep their fingers crossed that they're drawn in the lottery. Um, that's, the only, that's the only active teaching that I have planned for the future. That may, be ch- that may change um, in time to come. But.
0: And I'll put links to all of those resources in the show notes. Uh, Kudadasa, thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you. I enjoyed I enjoyed the opportunity, and I hope it is helpful to people.
0: Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.